0: Welcome to Human First. My name is David Tilston, and this podcast explores the methods, habits, and processes which allow us to excel as human beings. My aim is to utilize the experience and knowledge of experts from a wide range of different fields and to translate these into easy to follow principles that can be adopted by you to improve your life and those around you. Today, I welcome Mr. 10 Minutes, Florian Daggery, to the podcast. He is a freediving instructor currently based in Thailand and for the past 10 years, him and his team have taught over 7,000 students, 300 freediving instructors and coached many champions along the way. In his early years, he was mainly trained in deep diving, achieving a 90 meter dive in just one breath. Over the following years, he developed a soft spot for static apnea and made it his priority hitting 10 and a half minutes, which was seen as a world number one performance. Florian sees his discipline as a way to develop basic abilities, including deep relaxation, CO2 tolerance, hypoxia resistance, lung capacity, and mental techniques. Let's get into it. Well, Dan, thanks for joining me today. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast.
1: Thank you. Nice to, nice to meet you.
0: Thank you, man. It's, uh, what we're going to get into today is basically getting up to how you got to a 10 and a half minute breath hold, which we'll go into shortly. What I would like to know to start with is what did your early years look like and what got you into doing things like static apnea and free diving?
1: So I got into, um, diving in general, uh, started with scuba diving and then moved on to free diving later on about, uh, 10, 11 years ago. Before that, I had zero water experience, grew up, uh, in a little town, um, in the Paris uh, suburbs uh, so I was uh, an optician so selling glasses and shaking people's eyes um, so absolutely nothing uh, connected with water sports and uh, uh, I was not so so happy with uh, city life and with my job it was not very uh, interesting and, uh, on a holiday trip in Thailand, I started to scuba dive. I liked it. And then I started to free dive. I liked it even more. And then uh, bit per bit, I started to free dive a lot more and ended up quitting my job to become a diving instructor, scuba diving and free diving instructor.
0: Awesome, man. I read something that you dived. Was it 90 meters? Yes, correct. So how, how do you prepare for something like that?
1: So I was, uh, when I started to free dive, uh, I wanted to, to train myself diving as deep as possible. Uh, and in scuba dive, I was, I was doing like a good level of scuba dive. I was diving hundred meter in, in scuba, uh, doing a tri mix, uh, tech diving. They call this technical diving. And I started to free dive and I had this idea that at some point I should dive on one breath just as deep as I dive with all the scuba diving gear. And um, it, it, it did not happen because I uh, trained for a few years, went to 90 meters in training and 82 meter in competitions. And then after I had like a big blackout which sort of traumatized me uh, from those disciplines, I just realized it's too dangerous, too risky to dive that deep. And I started to train the pool freediving discipline more because they're a lot safer than the the deep discipline of freediving.
0: Could you describe what happened when you, uh, when you initially blacked out, was it on a very deep dive? Were you already quite deep when you actually blacked out?
1: So what happened is uh, mostly I was just uh, very young and not wise, not patient enough uh, to to simplify things. So I was uh, diving, I think, between 85 and 90 meters. It was in Egypt uh, and I was diving quite close to a reef. So my face was like a, a meter, a meter something from a reef and that was like stressing me out. I was a bit scared to hit the reef. And um, the line that I put, because when we free dive and try to dip as, as deep as we can, we follow a line. The line was touching the bottom. And normally you're supposed to be like at least 10 meters the end of the line is supposed to be 10 meters off the bottom of the ocean. But the place was 90 meters deep only, and I wanted to do almost 90, so I was naughty. And uh, I sort of crashed on the bottom because with the waves and the current, the, the line was slightly moving to shallower part of uh, the ocean. And I arrived at the end of the line and just like crash on the bottom. And that made me like panicked. And uh, if you panic at those depths, you can injure your lungs, which I did. And on the way up, uh, my lungs were bleeding. Uh, So so it stopped the oxygen to be diffused into the bloodstream and you have a blackout early. So I passed out in the last 25 meters, 20, 25 meters. Uh, on the way up, and then the the safety, my safety partners brought me back to the surface, but it was a very deep blackout. It took, you know, three, four, five minutes to wake me up, which was uh, very traumatizing, and as soon as I woke up, I was uh, coughing a good amount of blood, uh, and it took me, you know, about uh, two weeks to fully, fully recover physically, and uh, mentally speaking, I never... Never recover. I tried to dive deep again, and uh, it, it took me years to be able to dive comfortably again to 90 meter. And uh, it's just it just I I lost the, the passion for for depth, and that was really a wake up call. This is just too dangerous. I'm gonna and I already I'm already good enough. This is deep enough. Uh, I just going to maintain that performance and not trying to go deeper. And I'm going to specialize into pool free diving disciplines. Yeah.
0: 90 meters must be a long way. I mean, even just diving down five, six meters, I think for a lot of people is quite a long way down, even three meters for a lot of people seems like quite a long way. So 90 must be, it must be pitch black at that sort of depth. Is it, especially in somewhere like Egypt?
1: So in Egypt, the water is very clear. So at 90 meter, the water is still blue and you can still see very well. Uh, in a lake, 90 meter will be uh, pitch black.
0: So there's specific areas in Egypt that are used for diving, isn't it? There? And there's an area, is it the blue hole? Is, is that the, is that the area that's used for diving a lot? Is it normally around there where they actually do the free diving competitions?
1: Yeah, that's correct. So there's uh, there's many blue holes all around the world. Uh, there's one in the Bahamas which is 200 meter deep. There is one uh, in Egypt, which is uh, 90 meter deep. And uh, those places are very popular for free diving competitions and for deep uh, scuba dive also because you cannot suffer from any weather condition. Uh, stormy, rain, windy, It doesn't affect, it doesn't create current. Even the tides doesn't affect currents in a whole. So they are very popular places because you don't, you don't have to deal with weather condition and plan your training or your trips according to the weather. It's
0: always good. So in the say 10 minutes or even the hour before you were to dive to that depth, what would you be doing to prepare? And what would it look like in the couple of minutes before you actually dive down? Cause you said one breath, do you, is it like a five minute prep prior to moving into that one breath?
1: So, um, usually you start, uh, most free divers, almost all of us, uh, before going for a deep dive, we stretch the muscles around the rib cage so that when we on the pressure and compress the muscles can accept the pressure and we stretch also the long tissues with various uh, free diving exercises uh, to increase uh, the flexibility of the long tissue so alveoles and uh, capillaries and basically all, all the long tissue from your trachea uh, to uh, the smallest part of your lungs alveoli and that usually take about half an hour uh, and it's it looks like looks like um, some weird yoga session. If you would look at it from a complete amateur point of view, you could be confused with uh, someone doing yoga. Uh, It's slightly different, of course, but uh, from the outside, uh, it looks like this. And then, once you get into the water, Uh, you're going to do a few warm-ups or a few small dives to just check how you feel and wake up what we call the mammalian diving reflex, which which is a reflex that humans have because we are mammals, same as whales and dolphins. It's just very weak in a human, but it can be developed and it can be boosted. That's why we can dive as deep as we do. And... um, We're gonna have uh, some breathing technique before the dive. So we're gonna breathe in a very specific way uh, that will allow us to have a much slower heart rate than our resting heart rate. And uh, when we feel relaxed enough mentally and when our heart rate is low enough, we do a little uh, duck dive and uh, start swimming down. Sounds like a lot of prep.
0: I mean, studying um, pranayama or learning elements of pranayama over the years, there is similar. It sounds like similar concepts, but I'm sure there's different uh, differences between them in regards to prepping the abdomen, uh, releasing a lot of the tissue around the diaphragm and under the ribs using things like nauli and and various other bits and pieces, and then agnisara, like pushing the belly out and pulling back in, and then little pumps. Um, is the breath that you're using prior to lowering the heart rate very parasympathetic focused to lower that heart rate so to relax the body.
1: Yeah yeah that's uh, that's correct we play with uh, the nervous system a lot uh, by doing uh, quite long exhales basically. Um and uh, we use CO2 in our advantage. So we purposely breathe slower than a resting breathing rate, so that uh, CO2 start to slightly increase in the bloodstream and dilate blood vessels, which makes your blood flow um, better. So you can oxygen your, your body and your brain more efficiently. And when you breathe very slowly also, you make less effort because we have a lot of breathing muscles and even if we forget about it, those muscles use energy and they speed up the heart rate. So when you breathe less, your heart rate goes lower and uh, metabolism also gets uh, slower. and uh, also your whole uh, thinking process start to slow down. So you, you kind of enter some sort of uh, pilot autopilot mode.
0: Is it the sperm whale that has like two beats a minute That when it goes down and dives i think it's like two beats a minute it, it's heart will drop to uh when it's at that rate so it makes complete sense the slower things are underwater the less you're going to panic and all the rest of that and obviously there's many other processes involved um regarding the breath as well it's something what you were saying very much linked to a lot of the work uh, i did with the oxygen advantage method or betaker method which i'm sure you're aware of which is dealing with that CO2 tolerance, because when I've worked through classes with people, even on a very low level to sort of like the one minute, one and a half minutes, or even two minutes for some, it's amazing that some people actually have to breathe after 15 seconds, that that CO2 tolerance is so low, that when it rises in the system, it triggers that urge to breathe. And is that something that you find? Cause I think the, the term he used, um, Patrick McEwan, was lightly, but deeply. Is that something like a cue that you would take people through as well?
1: Yeah, similar. So there is uh, in free diving there is different breathing technique depending on the free diving discipline. So when you when you learn uh, free diving in a beginner level, we're just gonna teach you one standard breathing technique for every discipline. For diving deeper, for diving uh, longer in the pool horizontally or for holding your breath without moving and then the more you're going to learn more about this sport uh, you're going to learn that uh, each discipline has a specific style of breathing but you're right it's very similar to uh, the oxygen advantage uh, topics Uh, i'm talking about the book Uh, basically overall the whole sport of freediving is about developing a higher and higher CO2 tolerance,
0: which has enormous health benefits. That was actually one of the questions I had for you. I think it's question 12, so it's near the end. But it was along the lines of, do you feel that what you're doing now is giving immediate health benefits and also long-term health benefits as well? So improving longevity. You're allowing your body to process more CO2, which is allowing more oxygen to be released into the system. So do you feel that all of the things you're doing now to a degree are actually improving uh, your lifestyle?
1: Uh, so personally speaking, and uh, I think it goes for a lot of people who train free diving long term, uh, the biggest benefit is long size. Uh, when you train free diving, your lung capacity increases uh, a lot. Some people, like myself, have doubled their lung capacity since they started. Uh, and this is allowing me to uh, be very good at all sports that require to be good at endurance. So I, I'm not very good with like high intensity sports, like uh, where you where you are required to have a very big VO two max. But uh, anything which is light intensity for a long period of time, so long distance running, long distance swimming can be tennis as well football all these types of efforts uh, my abilities in in terms of cardiovascular and stamina are like uh, quite big like uh, especially running this is running and swimming this is what i practice the most and uh, I, I run surprisingly well like my performance are like pretty big Um, Like I I could compete, not at the world level, but I could do competition of swimming, I could do competition of running if I wanted to. Uh, The other health benefits, which are more slightly shorter term, is the ability to, uh, to focus or to concentrate on a task. So in freediving, you have to focus on very specific part of the dive or part of the breath hold, and uh, it helped me with uh, with work. Uh, It helps me with um, dealing with stressful situations in a daily life, like relationship or problem with uh, just uh, random people. So I'm just a lot more calm and. When I feel uh adrenaline rush or a panicking rush, I can quickly stop this panicking rush just yeah. by focusing on my breathing and doing pretty much the same thing as I do during a dive or during a breast hold. And so I'm I'm just very capable of stopping a stressful moment. And this is something which was which I was already capable of doing after three months of. Having training, so complete beginner. Uh, and then, of course, after 10 11 years, the skills have developed a lot. And those are like long size cardiovascular stress management, those are like the most, the biggest benefits you can get.
0: This episode is sponsored by Red Light Rising. As always, I'm only keen to promote brands that I've used and I believe in. Red Light Rising produce a number of products, but specialize in red and near infrared lights. And I've been using the half stack for at least four years. Now, first thing in the morning when doing my breath work benefits from this type of wavelength of light include skin health, sleep, energy, and much more. To find out more about the products, head to the red light rising website and use the code human, H U M A N at the checkout to save back to the podcast. I think that stress management is one of the biggest things for improving longevity and also community. So I'm sure there's quite a few of you that do this together. And if you look at most of the different areas around the world with higher, um, with a better quality of life that live longer, they all seem to have those reduced stress aspects to their life. They have more community, they laugh more, they do things together. And I think that's huge as well, because I'm always trying to find out what, what can I find out from an expert like you, from your chosen discipline? That can basically complement anybody's life. What can help other people? And I think if you can increase your breath hole, like you said, in three months, you saw a significant difference. Three months in a 90-year life is not that much time. These things can be changed very quickly. One of the things I was going to ask you, I got up to about the, I was just using different methods. I got up to about 3 minutes 45. And I was going to ask you, what type of things do you have to work with with people to get them through these different barriers? So for example... Is there like a barrier that people get stuck at say two minutes and then there's a five minute thing because I tend to see in strength, fitness, whatever it might be, you have these little blocks. So if I use gymnastics or like a handstand as an example, some people get stuck on a certain time for months and it's always roughly the same sort of spot. Do you find that people have got these barriers when it comes to holding their breath that maybe it's the two minute, five minute, 10 minute mark or anything along those sort of metrics?
1: Yep, I, uh, I experienced the same. So in free diving, it would be every round number. So for breath hold every minute, like one, the first one minute, two minutes, three minutes, the first four, five, six, seven. For horizontal uh, dives and vertical dives, so either in the pool or in the ocean, it would be every 10 meter is a bit of a kind of psychological wall. So the first 10 meter, the first 20 meters, 30 meters, 40 meters is usually where people like block a little bit. And um, the whole point is, uh, I mean, the secret is just to um, understand why this is happening and uh, tricking the person or simulating a situation in a similar situation with different exercise on a safer environment. So example, someone who would dive at 15 meters and he's like getting a bit stressed and he can't get to 20 meters. Then when you want to dive to 20 meter, it's a 40 meter swim, 20 meter down, 20 meter up. So we can go to a pool and we train to to swim horizontally that distance, that 40 meter distance and once you have done plenty of uh, 40 meter horizontally then suddenly when you go back to the ocean the distance seems much smaller to you or or you can even do like more horizontally in a pool in a safe environment uh, train 60 meters and then you know you're able to swim 60 meters on one breath so 20 meter and back is 40 meter, there's no reason for you to panic, you're able to do a lot more already, horizontally, so you always like find tricks when people have blockage, uh, you find tricks to unlock their potential, and those are like me- the mental approach of breath hold, and the physical approach is very simple, is... Um, In freediving, it's more about the quantity of breath holds you do weekly, regardless of what discipline of freediving it is, uh, compared to the intensity. So the number one mistake in freediving is that people get results pushing themselves, like just going through more and more pain, more and more urge to breathe, more and more CO2 in the bloodstream, and uh, they're getting... A result for some some time, and at some point they are disgusted and uh, they are blocked, and uh, they don't know what to do and uh, the best advice I tell everyone when I'm meeting free divers or people who are interested in this sport is I tell them the best thing I've learned and understood myself after eleven years of training is you don't need to push yourself in free diving regardless of the discipline you need to do medium difficulty dives or breath holds and you need to increase the amount of those breath holds and dives weekly uh, of course the more you increase the volume the quantity of breath holds the more you're gonna have to be good with your recovery uh, someone for example I hold my breath 60 minutes a day so that that I mean by that that I, I don't train 60 minutes a day if you add every single breath hold, whatever the freediving discipline can be a dive, can be horizontal in the pool, can be without moving, can be in my bed, on my couch, watching a movie. If you add the time that I spend not, ho- not breathing, it's about an hour to 90 minutes a day. So I'm, I'm breathing 23 hours a day, basically every single day. So quantity is very important. So that would be the quantity necessary to have a 10-minute breath hold. Uh, Of course, someone who begins will not have this quantity. And the quantity, you need to be careful because you need to be good with your recovery. When you do a lot of quantity, then you need to sleep eight hours. If you sleep six, you're not going to last very long. (laughs) You need to have the right diet. That means full antioxidant diet. Uh, That means also not too much carbs. Um, and other other aspects of dieting and, and supplementing.
0: Okay. There's about five things I want to ask you about There, Uh, the first thing I'll say is it was interesting. You said about pressure testing, cause it makes complete sense. When I, when I train people, I'm basically saying to them, we're doing these movement patterns to in a, in a controlled environment to prepare you when you go into life, when you go in into your discipline, because if you don't train these in the controlled environment and then you head straight into doing your discipline, when that stress goes up, everything falls apart. So it's almost like we used to do this in the military. We train to well in excess of hopefully where you're going to work to, and you do more training than you need to. So when you actually get to the competition and you're diving or doing something or, or running to something at 75% of the distance, that mental. Approach is I can do more than this. And that's what really fascinated. I love the idea of the horizontal swim because mentally you said I can do 40. So I'm only going 20 and coming back. It's not a big deal. I can do this. So yeah, one of the questions I was going to ask you was really around the differences really between the static apnea. I know it sounds kind of obvious in many ways, but what really appealed to you about that? Was it because it was convenient because it was easier to do um, and also following the almost like trauma that came from that previous dive being the catalyst to get into that. Was it mainly because you thought I actually prefer to do the static apnea or was it because I don't want to go back to trying that again? Cause like you said, it was too dangerous. So what was the driving force to really come across? Was it convenience or was it cause you just enjoyed it more?
1: Hmm. Hard to, hard to say, I guess a bit of both. And, uh, maybe the main factor is, I genuinely believed uh, that when you have a big breath hold everything uh, else in freediving comes naturally or it's easier to learn at least. So I just through through those 11 years of training, uh, I um, I realized uh, that I was naturally talented for static apnea. It's not like... Uh, I started uh, the first time uh, with an average breath hold uh, capacity. Like from the beginning, I was just good at it. So of course, you're good at something. It's uh, pushing you to train it more. And then by meeting people all around the world, other freedivers, I noticed that uh, freedivers who can hold their breath for like four minutes, uh, they don't dive uh, that deep. And, uh, or they don't swim in the pool that, that long and uh, they progress fairly slowly, which is, which is normal, like a 20-meter dive is going to be a minute, around a minute dive time. A 30-meter dive is going to be a minute and a half and so on and so on. So if you can hold your breath without moving for not even double the amount of time that you are uh, spending on the water while moving, uh, of course, the dive is difficult. Of course, equalization of the ears is difficult. Of course, mental relaxation is difficult. But when you can hold your breath five times longer without moving than with movement, then, you know, like example, 90 meter dive, my personal best, it's about a three, three and a half minute dive. Uh, With fins, with the big monofin, without the fins pulling the line, it's between three and three and a half minute dive. When you can hold your breath double that time already, you feel comfortable with swimming for three minutes. If you can hold your breath triple than this or more, then it feels like nothing. And over the years, like uh, I've obviously uh, maintained that ability to dive to uh, 80, 90 meters. And I do it as if it's a fun dive. I mean, not exactly like a fun dive, but I I take my time swimming down. I'm not like sprinting. I'm not so focused on the technique. Sometimes I just like look around, uh, which you're not supposed to do, uh, just for like a pure performance point of view. Uh, But it is not going that deep uh, and even spending, you know, 30 seconds at the bottom is not that hard because maximum this journey will take four minutes and, uh, I can hold my breath like two and a half times this, this much.
0: Yeah. The other, the other question, well, more of a point is regarding consistency. So again, it's one of the things I always, always backed up or at least tried to support, especially when with my own training and training others is that it's the con how do you say the total amount of time done in that week is a far better metric, like you said than just focusing on, right, I'm going to do one session a week of two hours. Because it, it just means that like one of my clients actually met this morning before this call, and he said he did work calls for one hour times five. And every gap between that for 15 minutes, he got up, he did some exercise, he walked around, did some breath work, and then went back in and continued to do his work, but in that day, he did 500 rotations of the mace instead of doing one session of a hundred. So his consistency has gone up significantly and I've seen some of the best practitioners I've ever trained with the ones that are truly expert in their discipline, they've put in three hours a day because the consistency and the total amount of time they've done has just meant that's, that's why they're an expert, the person that puts in 10 minutes and wonders why they can't hold their breath, balance on their hands, do something like a refined skill. It makes complete sense. If you do more, you're going to see more if you recover properly. I think that's the, that's the key point
1: yeah, I totally agree it's the, the the power of repetitions same as in martial arts you want a, you want a good punch, a good kick, then you're gonna have to like do do it a thousand times ten thousand times uh, and you don't have to put the full power every single time. it's more about like how many reps will you do about each movement each week and for how long can you do that without being bored or without giving up?
0: Do you utilize visualization prior to actually diving? Cause it's talked about a lot in regards to improving mindset and the ability to change your future is visualizing something that will happen and you can create that, is that something you use within your practice or preparation?
1: Yeah, this is, uh, one of the classic, uh, free diving technique. So visualization and mindfulness visualization is about, uh, Closing your eyes somewhere and uh, creating uh, images in your head about what you're about to do and doing it again and again and again uh, trying to have a more vivid or more detailed experience and it's working very well because our brain doesn't really know what is real and what is not real so Example, you you training to dive, to free dive to 20 meters and back. If you just lay down on your couch uh, three, four times a week and visualize that 20-meter 20, 20 dive for, for 30 minutes and uh, seeing it more and more clearly, every single step of it, you will notice that you actually gain experience. The next time you will go try in the water, then you're making less mistake. Then you're more into a pilot mode, so you're more zoned out during the dive instead of fo- super focused. Like, oh, I need to equalize my ear. I need to put myself in the right position. I need to relax now. I need to slow down my heart rate. And there's just so many things to do in in a, in a free dive. But if you have visualized it, it's almost like you actually have practiced it for real. And This is a big, big part of uh, visualization. For static apnea, it's a little bit the same, but it's more about what are you gonna try to think about during the static breath hold. And you want to like create a bit of a mental journey during your breath hold. So for me, I love to um, go back in time. For example, relive an event that I enjoy or not enjoy it and pretend I could just like modify it the way I want this event and uh, record it again. This is something I do during Brass Hall a lot. Or sometime I would do a visualization uh, of like travels, so I would would imagine uh, the pyramids. I'm at front of the pyramids uh, in Egypt and then I'm going around the pyramids and uh, all the places that I I like. So those are like types of visualization. And then you have mindfulness, which is a very uh, popular technique in freediving. And mindfulness is the ability to pay attention to details. So there is inside and outside mindfulness. Inside would be focusing on your body and mind, your heart rate, your sensations, what your mind is going through Uh, and outside mindfulness would be focusing on your surrounding as if you're a blind person who is trying to build an image of his or her surrounding as if you're like a sauna basically and with what you're feeling what you're hearing you try to know what's what's going on around you
0: That's, that's pretty amazing. It got me thinking that when you're doing your training, it seems to many like, oh, he's just holding his breath. But from what you've just told me, it sounds like when you're rehearsing past scenarios and trying to modify them, that is, I've had psychologists on, on this podcast before, and I've got good friends that talk to me about this, that something like 80% of what you think is not actually true. Something along those lines, obviously that varies. So for example, it's our interpretation of what happened to us in the past. But if you can go back and mentally change your uh, how that depicted, how that played out, but equally the emotional uh, connection to that. So if you're using it for a positive, if you were diving down, these things are now a learning lesson. They're they're providing a tool so you can hold your breath for longer because you're reliving a scenario, which I find incredible. Um, And it's very much that, that inner narrative, you're going inward. And for so many of us, we're so externally pointed. We're always looking out. It's very rare we actually dive in and deal with the internal stuff.
1: Yeah. And uh, also uh, the the
0: way the world is uh, evolving,
1: we are extremely active. We are connected to the internet, uh, to screens uh, more and more. And we just like full of dopamine all the time, new info, new info, new entertainment, <laughs> new entertainment. And we're losing this ability to just like chill and, and, and relax. And in freediving, you're kind of gonna relearn that, th- those, those things. And for the mental technique, what you mentioned and what I mentioned about visualization and mindfulness, in freediving, the whole concept is to speed up your time perception. When I do 10 minutes, this is, what I ex- this is how I experience time. After about 20 seconds, what seemed to be 20 seconds to me, I hear my brother or my safety saying one minute, I, I wait 20 seconds again, and then I hear two minutes, and so on and so on. It, this 10 minute plus breath hold, for me, I'm leaving them as if it's like not even five or four. It goes very quick. Sometimes I'm like shocked. I hear hear 8 minutes and then 10 seconds later I hear 9 minutes. It goes very quickly. And this is what we're trying to do. Uh, We're trying to speed up the time perception during a dive by being on pilot mode so we can be zoned out. And everyone has experienced this time perception modification in their life. Very uh, easy example, you drive to work with your car, with your bike, and let's say it's a 20-kilometer 20 20, 20 ride, and you just zoned out the, dro- the, the, the car drive by itself, and you're thinking about other things, and in no time you're at work. And if you go to a new place you've never been, that has the, the same distance, 20 kilometer, also, because it's the first time, uh, you're observing a lot of new areas and looking what's going on, you will, you will see that uh, the, the distance is a lot longer, the trip is a lot longer. Or another example is like watch a movie. Let's say you're watching Avatar. When you watch Avatar, you three hours staring at a wall. Uh, but you, know, you entertain and times pass fairly fast when you're at the theater. But if you take the same length of the movie and you sit down on a chair at home watching the wall for the same amount of time, it would be torture. It would be so long. So we, we experience time uh, very differently depending on of, uh, our mindset. And every mental technique in freediving, the goal is to speed up your perception of time so that those enormous dive doesn't feel enormous.
0: Yeah. You're changing your, your perception of what's going on around you. So you're changing your perception of a constant. Well, we believe time's a constant. So I think that's, uh, again, I was funny enough having this conversation within the last 24 hours where we were saying about scenarios happen, but it's the way you perceive that scenario to be taking place. That's the important thing. Regarding training as well, I think many people misunderstand this inside, outside concept. So they misunderstand the fact that we have this this internal environment and everything we express externally, whether it's a movement pattern, whatever it might be, is interpreted on an internal level. So even if that's the movement of a joint, that you might move your limb, but your body has had to process where is that limb, how is it going to move at a joint level? I'm telling my brain where that joint is in space. Quick one, to find out more about working with me and the four levels of 90-day mentorships I currently offer, please head to the one-to-one coaching link in the show notes. Back to the podcast. It, it always fascinates me how people get into these things as well. You said being an optician and then ending up holding your breath for 10 and a half minutes. One of my teachers was a gardener. Now he balances on one arm for a living. Um, one of my other teachers is a martial artist used to flip burgers. So everyone gravitates from this sort of, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say mundane job by any means, but just a more structured job into more creativity and more art. I mean, do you, do you feel like this for you is expressing yourself? Do you feel like this is an art or a skill? I think there's a little difference, but I'll leave it up to your interpretation.
1: Well, in, in many uh, videos or
0: like um, websites,
1: article that I wrote, I mentioned the sport as the art of relaxation. So I, I definitely consider freediving as some very artistic uh, skill and sport. And uh, most of the discipline, all the discipline except mine, are very visual. It's very fascinating to see uh, people diving as deep as they can, and now we have drones following us, so you can literally see live. Um, in a what? In about two days, three days, there is a, one of the biggest deep freediving competition in the Bahamas. It's called Vertical Blue. Uh, you can watch this, I believe, on YouTube live. Uh, or you have you need a subscription to the Vertical Vertical Blue website. I'm not so sure. Some year was free, some year wasn't not free. But it's it's fairly cheap to watch this event, and uh, you see you see uh, a, a drone. I mean, you see the diver followed by the drone that has the camera on real time. You see how deep they go. You see how long the dive is. Uh, sometimes the dives are successful, sometimes they are not. Um, so, you see also what happened if we push the limit a little bit too far. You, we take a nap, huh? same as a boxer that, that gets knocked out. A free diver that goes too far uh, will just uh, pass out and get knocked out by the ocean, let's say. and A few seconds later, he will wake up and there's absolutely no risk of brain damage whatsoever. Uh, so yeah, I, I see it as a, as a sport, I see it as a, an art of relaxing. I've heard so many people saying uh, don't tell me to relax or uh, don't tell me try to relax, it's impossible. I never understood that, that whole speech like relaxation is a skill and you need to train it. It's not from one day to another that uh, you're good at relaxing quickly and deeply. It's something you have to do daily. And uh, when you when you do it daily for some time, you get very good at relaxing in any situation.
0: It's so true. I mean, we, one of the big things we've practiced in the past, and it comes back to that pressure testing, is how, when you've got people shouting at you or they're saying, oh, do this, and try and add things in that really challenge Uh, You externally or the stimulus, whether it's your eyes, your ears, your touch, your, your muscles, is that can you come back to a place of balance and calm, even when chaos is kicking off? Because it's almost like in the end, the scenario means nothing because you understand that your body's just interpreting stress and then you have to deal with that stress. It's either stress goes up or stress goes down. So if you can do that, regardless of what situation you walk into, you said this has complemented many areas of your life. Whatever you go and do, like you said, you can translate that training into anything now, which I, which fascinates me. And that's what I try and pursue with, with many things I do now.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. For example... Uh... You know, work when work is stressful, where financial situation is stressful, when relationship is stressful, or even when you have like issues or difficulties to man- manage your anger, uh, free diving skills is uh, pretty helpful. Of course, it's not something you're going to learn over a week, uh, those are. You know, after a few months of practice, because you need to get to a certain level of freediving where stress is getting high. And uh, at first, when you begin in freediving, things go very quickly. It's, it seems to be, it is an extreme sport, but the beginner level is extremely easy. People learn to dive comfortably 20 meters and hold their breath for three minutes in a few days. Worst case scenario, in a week. People can hold their breath for three minutes and dive 20 meter comfortably within a week. In the worst scenario, in general, like na- 95% of people will reach those performance within a week, wow. and uh, you know, 5% they will reach it on day one. So it, it's it's very extreme. Being extremely good at the sport takes years, uh, but uh, learning the basic of it is very easy to learn, very easy.
0: So on that one, when you train, um, okay. So say, let's keep it really simple. Say someone's in the gym and they're growing muscle tissue, the connective tissue takes longer to adapt. So the white stuff, so red stuff growing quite quickly, but the white stuff might take months or years. Do you find that applies to when someone's starting off, do you find they might hit high metrics, but to make it consistent, consistently high? that they have to keep training that so it's almost in the subconscious because you said you're also training the mental aspect does the mental aspect take a little bit longer is that like the connective work that just takes a little bit longer to to get in and introduce into someone's training
1: uh, so in free diving everything takes quite a bit of uh, time for reaching high performances so um If if I have to put some uh, numbers, uh, five minute breath hold can be done in a few months for everyone. Like uh, it it doesn't take longer than three months of training, 30 minutes a day to reach a five minute breath hold. Uh, Diving to 40 meter deep uh, or hundred meter length in a pool will also take about three months for 90% of people, uh, and the other 10% will take six months. So uh, then after, things get a lot more complex, and it will take a long time to progress. So it will really be each year of training uh, a few a few seconds more, one minute more on your breath hold, or 10 meters more on your dive, on your deep diving, 10 meters more on your length in the pool. It takes years and years. Uh, and everything evolves at the right speed, to answer your question. So 50% of the sport would be mental adaptation, learning to stay calm in stre- more stressful situations. And the physical aspect would be a long size, how fit you are, how flexible your blood vessels are, which is like basically your cardiovascular abilities and the adaptation to hypoxia, low levels of oxygen and the adaptation to high CO2, hypercapnia. So, and that's 50%, that's the physical part. So, uh, that's the equal of your physical uh workout that you mentioned about the muscles getting stronger so co2 tolerance oxygen tolerance long size uh is is the physical part of free diving and which is represent 50 of the skills you need and the other 50 percent will be just the ability to stay calm so it's like a physical sport just as much as a mental sport
0: yeah you mentioned about the huge gains that people can make in the first couple of months. And this is apparent in every discipline I've looked at is when, so I have some friends that will only train beginners and it's mainly because they're happy doing that and that's the the people they like to work with. Whereas other people I work with, work with the top 1% in a certain skill, the people that are working with beginners, any stimulus, anything you give them is going to have some form of positive adaptation. So they're going to make quite a big jump in the early stages. And I actually find for myself, what I found is working with people over five, six, seven years, that when you start to work with people for a long time and you're trying to make 1% increase, it takes as a coach, a lot of brain power, um, and mental focus to think, how can I get one more percent out of this person to give them that extra, in your case, one meter, one meter more depth or 10 seconds more. Because that might be something that no one's thought of yet, and you have to see these things from maybe a sleep standpoint or relationship standpoint. Because the stress is translating to their movement or their breath hold or something else. Do you find that that can have a significant impact? Things like stressful relationships shows itself in breath holds.
1: Yeah. So of course, um, as you said, beginners uh, it's pretty easy. To, to coach any exercise routine that that you make them do will have some sort of uh, gain and, and they will have they will see progress and then the higher in performance so the top 1% of of athletes of any sport it requires uh, a lot a lot of thinking to 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 find how do we get this person to higher performances and those top 1%, of course, if they have uh, stressful relationships uh, or stressful time at work or just like they're just generally not happy with their current situation, it slow down or even block their progress. So you definitely need to have uh, or to be in the right space in your mind, or being a part of your life where everything is going pretty well, so your perception of where you are in life and how satisfied you are with your life, while you're competing or while you're learning some sports, is is important and will affect how fast you learn things and uh, how far you will progress in the sport you
0: want to, for sure. I was also trying to sort of get across this distraction element that when things distract you and they are stressful, you mentioned about opening your eyes and you're not supposed to, to look around, like look around at things. Is that because you now move from the subconscious into the conscious mind and that can affect something like a free dive or a static hold?
1: So when I said this, I was mentioning this about like uh, the depth discipline where you're trying to dive as, uh, as deep as possible. Oh, okay. Um, the, the whole idea is about conserving oxygen to, to dive deeper and deeper. And uh, you are supposed to be um, zoned out or some people say deconcentrate uh, during a dive. Uh, and as relaxed as you can and uh, if you want to look around and see the fish and everything then you're not uh, doing max performances, you are going for a fun dive uh, in a conservative depth and then your eyes are open all the time and you're exploring and finding fishes and stuff like that but if you are doing performance free dive, so you're trying to beat yourself as a challenge, beat your performance then your eyes, for most part of the dive, and this goes for every freediving discipline, should be closed because you are supposed to look within and not what's going on outside. And you you shouldn't need to even look where you're going, because if you train well, you're supposed to swim automatically in the right direction, following the line, so or following, following the line if you're in the ocean or following the line at the bottom of the pool if you're horizontal. So there is, if, if, you, if you're losing the line, it's because your technique hasn't been trained well and you don't swim straight. So you need to work on your technique, but you shouldn't need your eyes to swim in the right direction.
0: Today's sponsor is Ape Nutrition. To find out more about their products, their ethos, and how they support the environment and much more, please check out episode seven with Josh and myself. And to save 10% on all orders, head to apenutrition.co.uk using the code human, that's H-U-M-A-N, at the checkout to find out more. Back to the podcast. So you recently, I say recently, in the last couple of years, you went through some form of adversity uh, in regards to seeing a huge drop in time so i understand that was following a vaccine and would you be able to just sort of explain that because i think i wanted to touch on this and not spend too long on it but just just sort of bring it to the forefront in regards to how it affected you and what you did to improve your circumstances because i think that's the important bit
1: yeah so uh, this was during the, the covid period i uh, i didn't want to Personally speaking, my opinion was I didn't want to get this uh, vaccine because um, I thought if I had COVID, I would be fine, uh, just because I think I have a pretty good immune system. And then I've been forced to take it, like many people, because of restrictions. Yeah, I, could, I couldn't do my work, I couldn't pay my bills if I wasn't uh, vaccinated. Because uh, in Thailand, I had, to, I had to go into quarantine for 14 days when I changed city. So every time I take a student on an island for a trip, then I have to quarantine 14 days when we arrive. And then when I go back home, I have to quarantine 14 days again. So at some point, when they made that rule, I had no more choice. So I did. And then I got quickly after the second job, I got diagnosed with something called myocarditis and this is an inflammation of the heart muscles so it's basically your heart is swollen and you experience very uh, fast heart rate, short breath as if you have asthma so I I have asthma my my whole life, I was born with asthma so I I thought initially that could be an asthma attack but I quickly uh, realized that uh, it is not and uh, and then you have like your heart rate going down and up down and up down and up or sometimes it's just up all the time like you're sitting down in a cold room doing nothing and your heart rate is like 170 you know i'm always i always have a sport a sport watch so uh, you know i know very very well what's my resting heart rate in any time of the day And so I quickly, and then I had chest pain, like sort of like cramps, as if I had like a, at first I thought it was like too much stretching, maybe an intercostal or a pec that that is cramping, maybe I have like a magnesium deficiency or whatever. And uh, altogether I figured out that something was really wrong, went to the doctor, they told me it's okay, it's the um, side effect of uh, vaccination, wait a little bit. I waited for weeks and then uh, got diagnosed. I went to another cardiologist and then got diagnosed. And it took me about a year to fix it. So as soon as I got diagnosed, uh, no more sport whatsoever, like zero. just rest, 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 rest. And then uh, I had a bunch of um, a bunch of uh, medicine to take. Uh, So, classic stuff, uh, Arnica, beta-blockers, muscle relaxant, uh, um, you know, like things we give to people who have myocarditis. By the way, myocarditis is not something that came from vaccination. You can get myocarditis from various reasons that exist, that condition or illness existed way before the, the, the COVID time. And... I realized, thanks to my asthma background, that all the drugs they were asking me to take were not fixing the illness. They were just removing the symptoms, exactly like asthma drugs these days. We're not treating asthma. There is zero treatment for asthma, as far as I know. And I think I should know if there if they would be. And we're just giving you corticosteroid or Ventolin, salbutamol, things like vasodilator for the lungs that stop the asthma symptom and make you feel like you have a normal uh, lung capacities. But you're still an asthma patient forever. And this it was exactly what was happening to me. And I realized this during the myocarditis because when I was off the pills, off the meds, it was coming back. And then I take the meds again or a different, a different uh, set of meds and everything goes well. Doctors tell me, okay, you're good, we can stop, it's over. And then everything was coming back. And after a few go, uh, go back and forth, uh, I uh, started looking at other options in medicines. And uh, I got lucky to, uh, to uh, someone contacted me like uh, just through social media uh, after actually after uh, listening to the Joe Rogan podcast. So actually I can say a big thank you to Joe Rogan because he indirectly healed me. And these people, they were a clinic of stem cells. And uh, I went to meet them. And one of the owner or partner was a freediver, like a NAMAT uh, freediver, someone who really enjoyed the sport. And uh, I couldn't afford a stem cells treatment, and uh, he was like, "Man, you know, it's on me," and and they just treat me for free. Uh, and uh, very quickly, it, it went. Uh, all the symptoms were off, uh, just as quick as uh, the classic treatment from uh, medicine from for myocarditis. And uh, but but then I just uh, stopped taking any sort of medicine I just had my stem cell injection and then uh, that's it it was uh, it was gone it never been back however my performance never came back to 100% to, to what I had before before this year this world championship I did 10 minutes before this year before being sick I was doing 10 and a half minutes and, uh, and also it's much more difficult for me to reach 10 minutes now than it was before. And my heart rate used to be maximum 35, minimum 38 during a breath hold, so extremely low. And now it's just 50. Now, like right now, right now, we are one month after the World Championship. When I hold my breath, I'm at 50 sometime on lucky days I see some 45 46 so it's a huge difference but when I go to cardiologist and they're doing uh, they're doing the eco uh, checking my heart I've never had an inflammation again after the stem cells treatment and I could do sports pretty much I could restart any sport pretty much uh, after the treatment like weeks after and uh, it's been now a year, something that I'm uh, healthy again, and authorized by doctors to uh, exercise any type of exercise I want. So, so, so they. Fi- it took me one year to to get better with the general medicine, and it took me three months with stem cells to fix the problem forever.
0: Well, that's a hell of a journey. Um, yeah, I'm sorry to hear you went through that, but undoubtedly it's it's got you to look at things like stem cells because stem cells seem to be coming up a lot. I'm hearing so much about stem cell treatment. I know someone quite well who had very bad cancer, like very bad, and they basically destroyed the immune system with chemo. And the only thing he could do was get basically this cutting edge uh, stem cell treatment. And it was so good that his hair was originally gray then all his hair came back like brown so this stuff is incredible, and there's quite a few doctors online talking about this stuff. I know Tony Robbins has released a book where he discusses this at length, looking at all these sort of cutting edge treatments as well. So, what did your training look like once you had the diagnosis? After so, obviously, you did no training when you knew things weren't great. Let, let's go to that first. How did that affect you mentally? Like, how did you deal with that? What did you direct your thoughts to? Because if I can't train or move, my mental capacity is definitely reduced somewhat, my capacity for stress, et cetera. Did you find that you got stressed more or anything like that? How did you cope during that time?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it, it changed my life and personality, I think deeply forever. Uh, there is some silver lining in this, uh, some positive and negative. But so when it happened, uh, first I was extremely scared for my life for the first time, uh, which was very strange. And, uh, you know, when you're lucky and healthy at uh, 35 years old, you just, you just don't really think about like things could, could go, get bad health-wise. You just think I'm young, so I'm going to be healthy for quite some time. And uh, you don't think about like life can get dark. And so me, I was like seriously scared to, you know, not wake up each day. I was uh, when I was having cramps in the chest or like um, ventilation hard to control. I was uh, I was thinking that's it. In the next five ten minutes, it's it's a heart attack coming. You know, like I I made like my last uh, wishes. I don't know how we say in English, but uh, the last wishes before you. You know. I, I literally prepared in case I would actually die. It changed me a lot deeply because I, I'm just more selfish now. Like I just do what the fuck I want. Sorry for the <laughs> for the swearing.
0: No, do it. Uh,
1: and uh, yeah, so I'm a lot more selfish than before. I uh, don't compromise much. I enjoy I enjoy you know the good moments a lot more. And I enjoy just life in general, little details a lot more than when I've never experienced a serious health issue. So this is like some positive, some negative was uh, extremely stressed, grumpy, completely depressed. I mean, I've been doing sports my whole life, not at high level. Free diving is the only high level sport i ever done but uh, I've been doing a lot of uh, martial arts, I've done some tennis, some, some table tennis, some badminton, a lot, 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 lot of sports, paraglide. I know that without sports, I'm a naturally depressed person, or naturally sad person. And, and I need to be not an athlete, necessarily, but I need to be active, I need to do sports, uh, you know, freediving is not the only sport I do. I, I still do boxing. I I, um, I do running. I do swimming, and uh, and I probably will not do freediving forever. Maybe there will be a new hobby that will a new sport that will like um, that will uh, eat freediving or take priority over freediving. But uh, uh, just being honest with myself, I know that without sport. I'm a grumpy person, and I'm getting depressed easily. Maybe it's genetic. My family has like a depressive kind of history over like parents and grandparents and grand-grandparents. Could be like not related, doesn't matter. But when I was sick for about a year altogether, I was like noticing a different Florian, a very depressed uh, Florian. And uh, that, was, that was very difficult. So yeah, there's been some positive, some negative, I mean, mostly negative, but uh, let's say mostly negative with some very valuable silver lining now. And uh, I was very lucky, you know, very lucky because a lot of people who got myocarditis and uh, they, they, they were not lucky
0: as, as me. So that got me thinking of a conversation I actually had in Thailand with someone who was a uh, Buddhist monk, so he did some time in prison. He was walking past this building and he realized it was all uh, monks building this. And they said, come over, have a talk. So anyways, he started to talk and they said, what are you doing? He said, I don't know. I've just come out of prison. They said, well, how about you help us build this and then live here? So he stayed there for eight years and meditated. And one of the things they did every single day was meditate on their death. And he said that the meditation on their death every day actually made them appreciate what they had. And it's it's a conversation I've had with a few people and it's something I've witnessed uh, from nearly being blown up a couple of times and turning up to incidents when there was a, in the fire service regarding people in their last seconds or they've gone through trauma where you think we're not invincible uh, and there are things we need to actually think about and actually, uh, actually be grateful for what we've got. And I think sometimes going through an experience like that has many, many positives. Um, And you also said about that depressed thing. I do think generational trauma continues. I think sometimes what parents have, grandparents have, and all the rest of it, I think that filters down until we say enough's enough. Uh, We're not going to take this further. And something like tuning into a sport or a skill, for me as well, is one way that I can channel stuff. It's the way I can express offload stress and all these other bits and pieces as well. So um, what did your training look like after? How did you build back up to getting back to where you are today? Was it a very gradual process or did you dive in? <laughs> not literally, but straight back in at the deep end almost.
1: Well, well I, I missed freediving a lot. So it was hard to not uh, train hard when I, when I got the clearance from, from, from the medical team. Um, I went very quickly back to eight and a half minutes. When I say very quickly, it was probably three months. And I did a competition in Bangkok. Uh, I didn't. I didn't get a white card. White card means a valid performance uh, because I was very hypoxic. So my recovery, and uh, you know, you have to like. To, to judge the level of hypoxia, we have to remove all our facial equipment when we finish a dive. We have to do this with our hands, like an OK sign, and we have to say, I am OK. And this is just to judge how hypoxic you are and put a limit. Otherwise, it's just difficult to see if you're conscious or not conscious or in between. And uh, I failed that part, but otherwise the brass hole was back at 8:30 with instruments. Then it was totally impossible to come back to come back to ten until this year. So I spent the whole year of 2022, last year, uh, dreaming about getting back to my performance, and I and I gave up. Uh, like for me it was impossible with a heart rate at 50 during breast hold compared to 35 before it was just impossible so I sort of uh, managed to go to nine and uh, got stuck there for the whole year and uh, made my peace with the fact that my career, competitive career in this discipline is finished. I'm still going to free dive but I'm never going to be a top level uh, free diver, and this year uh, someone paid me to go to the World Championship. Otherwise, I would have never go because uh, because you know my performance is not back yet. So why would I even go? It's it's a funny story. Someone who thought I was doping challenged me and paid me to go to the World Championship, and in exchange of the financial support. Uh, this person uh, wanted to have four blood tests of any kind at any moment for any substances uh, prior the World Championship because he might, he might, he was probably thinking I can like cheat the the doping test on the competition events somehow. Uh, you know, freediving, there's a very little money, so I don't believe a second there's one single freediver on the planet who is uh, knowledgeable enough to actually pass a WADA doping test with uh, banned substances, using banned substances. I might be wrong and naive, but that's what I think. Anyway, this guy had some serious doubt about me. It's another freediver, another... Another competitor, free another world Mm -hmm. champion. Not going to say his name. (laughs) (laughs) And he paid me, and uh, and then I did what he asked. I did all the blood tests and everything, and uh, and I went to the championship, knowing that I probably have no chance to win. But somehow, uh, the world championship was mid June this year. I started my training. My I train all. I, I always train, but my serious training uh first january so i trained six months and a half for that event and i was i was already back at nine and of last year and uh somehow i just tried new things i uh i stopped trying to get my my heart rate back my low heart rate back and uh, i increased my long size i decreased my uh my fat percentage, I got leaner. I just increase other aspects, boost other aspects, and gave up on trying to do things the way I used to. And uh, and then it it happened. I managed to go actually in training uh, back at like more than ten minutes. And then on the World Championship, obviously you want to win. The goal is not to make, to make a personal record. So you the goal is to get the gold medal so i thought 10 minutes was enough to to make the gold medal and uh, and then i was i was right the other competitors were at like
0: nine to nine and a half out of interest what did the other guy get don't say his exact time because it'll give it away but (laughs) did he get like nine and a half was it was it quite a way off your time out of interest it's always nice to hear when you sort of beat, beat people with that.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, the the second the second place was, well, one other French guy, uh, one, the the second best w- worldwide or third best depends depends the year. His name is Laurent. Uh, this guy he did nine and a half, but then he got disqualified shortly after uh, because someone helped him to come out of the water and that Uh you have to come out of the water with your own strength Uh, but otherwise the second performance was nine and a half that was just a technique issue like a team issue between the athlete and the safety and then the second one official so the one who got second place because Laurent got disqualified was a Russian guy don't know his name and he did uh, 9-10 and the third guy was a swedish guy and he did like uh, eight uh, and a half or eight forty-five,
0: something like this whoa that's amazing that's incredible man that's um that's a big jump as well like from nine to ten i'm sure that's quite a difference is that we're talking about the one the percent that's ten percent that's a huge jump ten percent or more okay you mentioned foods so the last couple of questions you mentioned foods how do they impact uh, what you do because you mentioned about less carbohydrate, all that sort of stuff, which is something that I've gravitated to over the years. I personally eat low carbohydrate, higher amounts of protein and fat. Do you find that particular foods change things? Cause you said when you orientated stuff or moved things around, you noticed a difference in, in terms of breath hold.
1: Yeah. Let me just think a second. There's one of my, uh. There's one of my breakthrough super secret in the diet. <laughs> so maybe I keep that for myself. <laughs> That's for the online uh, course. But overall, yeah. um, okay, this is what, this is, uh, what I'm uh, happy to say, Ni- okay. 98, 98%. <laughs> um, so uh, free diving diet is in general for every discipline, is about having tons of uh, protein because it's a part of building red blood cells and Mm haemoglobin having a diet which is uh, alkaline uh, or who help staying alkaline or at least avoiding acidity Um, and having lots of antioxidants and then of course you need the right amount of calories so for deep discipline, you need a high amount of calories because you need to have enormous strength uh, to come back from great depth to the surface. In uh, pool discipline, so horizontal length, you need to have a good amount of strength too, but not as much as depth. So the, cal- the total amount of calories will be average Proportional to your metabolism. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, around 2,000 calories daily for a male. Um, and static apnea is where we use zero muscles when we're moving. Uh, so, we actually need no strength. So, we don't need to be fit. Uh, we don't need to have uh, very strong muscles. Uh, we need to be very lean, no, uh, very low body fat. And the other discipline needs like an average body fat, like a swimmer kind of body fat, 15% for male, a bit more for female, to have the right buoyancy. And in static apnea, we have, uh, we can use whatever we float on the surface, so we don't care about the buoyancy, and we want to have like zero body fat. So the overall, the diet will, will go into a keto style diet so a real ketogenic diet will be bad for free diving totally bad but going to a fake keto so low carbs high protein high veg high fat would be something very good uh, for free diving and then there is, just before competing, there is a period of fasting or calorie deficit in all disciplines. But the strongest uh, is the static apnea. In static apnea, we do a weight cut like a boxer, like, and a water cut as well, exactly like boxers do. In the other discipline, vertical, horizontal, You don't weight cut, but you slow down your metabolism by doing some sort of fasting. Or when I say fasting, I'm talking about an intermediate fasting. You don't stop eating. You eat less. So you're on calorie deficit to slow down your metabolism, maybe like a week before a competition to have a tiny boost of performance.
0: Is sauna and cold therapy also looked at in regards to the health of the circulation, uh, or circulatory system, is that something that's looked at as like an ancillary training thing that could give you that extra one or 2%? I'm,
1: I'm not sure. I don't think you will help. I don't think it's strong. The benefits are strong enough to, uh, boost your performance. I think the benefits are good because you're going to get less sick. Your immune system is going to be stronger. Uh so when you in the fasting period you can get sick easily. When you travel to a diving place uh, by plane, by bus, and you in a confined area with a hundred people breathing the same air, you're gonna get sick easily. If you uh stress and have a few nights in a row or a few weeks in a row of poor sleep, you're gonna get sick. So if you train tolerance to cold, your immune system is stronger and you will get less sick. So indirectly, it could help performing at your best abilities, but I don't think the benefits will give you extra boost. I personally do a lot of cold water training in, in spa in Thailand. Obviously, we don't have cold water here. So I go to spas and uh, there we have tons of spas in Phuket and they have like... Um, 15 degrees, 18 degrees, 5 degrees, 8 degrees, like any temperature you want. And I train cold so that I can wear the thinnest wetsuit in any competition. Because some competition, they have a pool at 26. Another one will have a pool at 22. Another one will have a pool at 30. So you never know. And you need to be prepared for a cold pool. And uh, if you wear a thick wetsuit, then you cannot expand the ribcage to maximum capacity it just it's causing it. the wetsuit is like putting pressure on your on your ribcage so you always going to need i mean the top athlete i'm not talking about the beginners uh the top athlete uh, every details count and we want a foot which is one millimeter so uh, i noticed at this world championship that uh, a lot of athletes made mistakes in static apnea. In Korea this year, the water was 26. For some freedivers in static apnea, it is cold because we are cutting weight, cutting water, cutting body fat, so we get cold easier than than other freedivers who train other disciplines, who don't cut weight. And a lot of freedivers had a three millimeter suit, which is small, but I definitely had the advantage to have a one meal suit and not being cold compared to others. So I could definitely, I, I'm pretty sure I put more air in my lungs than the other athletes just because I had a thinner suit. And we're talking about 100 milliliter of air or 200 milliliter of air extra in the lungs. But for, for 10 minute level, it, it makes a big difference between like a nine and a half, minute performance or 10
0: that's amazing it's those little details that matter it's like when you watch formula one or motorbikes that are performance bikes it's every detail it's like how they they change one fin or one piece of the floor of the car and all of a sudden they've got 15 kilometers an hour more than the other guys which i find incredible i love i love those details because that's to me that's what really matters the details make the difference so with that in mind, uh, Florian, what, what are you aiming for now? What's next? What what goal have you got in the next five or even 10 years?
1: Um, professionally speaking, I'm just uh, coaching free divers online. Uh, that's what I like to do. Uh, and uh, I used to have a diving school. I had a diving school in Thailand for 10 years and I closed it after covid which is funny like i survived covid when they closed the borders i just maintained the business teaching thai people i have i've been here for more than 10 years so i have a good customer base from thailand and then when they reopened the borders and all this pandemic was finished and tourists came back in thailand i was too tired mentally and i wanted to change Uh, i wanted a new adventure and i closed the school And since then, I'm coaching uh, freedivers online. So total beginners or uh, people who are at high level, like uh, from beginners to to competitor level. And then, uh, so that's my project. Professionally, I want to develop uh, my business online. And in terms of my future goals as an athlete, I want to do some easy world record. When I say easy that means that they are not officially real disciplines of freediving. So I want to do this for fun and for marketing purposes because it's good publicity. So I'm training to do the longest breath hold under the ice like trap on the in a lake or you know freezing water and no suit nothing and holding trapped under the ice and I'm training also uh, to do the uh, word record in 100% uh, pure oxygen so in static apnea there is this like party trick that we usually use to train actors or dancers people who need to like make videos or play in a movie or they need a certain breath hold skill but it's not their job. They're not going to become freedivers and they need a quick performance uh, done, uh, like the actors in Avatar or um, Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. So you make those people breathe pure oxygen and you teach them static breath hold. And of course, you know, they have five times more oxygen in the lungs and, bl- and blood five, the reserve is multiplied, you know, there's 21% in the air. So you multiply that by five uh, and you can hold your breath basically five times longer. And uh, I feel irritated when when I see um, fans or people on websites or social media who are commenting. uh, (laughs) This is not the world record. Ten and a half is not the world record. There is like some guy who do 24 minutes in pure oxygen all this. But those are like, it's not free diving. This is just a party trick. So I'm just training this to put it like to put it so high that no one talks about it again. <laughs> and no one wants to <laughs> and no one wants to do that that record again. So I'm training those two like fake world records. I don't know when I'm gonna do them, but you know, within a year uh and then I'm training other discipline so I'm training the dynamic swimming as far as I can in a pool I'm gonna train mostly this for a year to perform at the next world championship next year which is in Sweden next year not in Korea uh, so I'm not aiming for world record or anything but uh I'll I'll do my best to perform well and then I'm I'm uh, and then we'll see I'm not interested to do a world record every year. It's not so much publicity. You have the respect of the freediving community, especially the athletes. Uh, but uh, you know, you you make one funny video on uh, social media, and you get a lot more publicity than going to the world championship. So, and then I don't know. You know, you world champion. Uh, someone can beat me next year. I'm still world champion. It's not the title is going away. You know you're a world champion one time in your life, it doesn't expire, you know. You're just not the current one anymore. So I don't feel super motivated to do this every year and have two-time world champions, three-time world champion, four-time world champion. I, I just don't see the point. One, one time is enough. Maybe in the future, if someone beat me next year, then the year after that, I might be a little bit motivated to get the performance higher but uh, for now i want to stick to pleasure only in static apnea so my breast roll now is eight minutes down to eight minutes i'm maintaining this eight minutes daily and i'm focusing on another freedom in disciplines to compete later
0: that's incredible okay so last uh, two questions really if someone was looking to get into this what would you recommend obviously have a online course as well, which uh, I'm sure people are keen to hear about. Um, but where would you start for people?
1: You'll find a free diving school, a free diving instructor or a free diving coach, because if you try to learn by yourself online, because you know, you can learn free diving by yourself, by educating, uh, researching and educating yourself online, every technique is out there. But if you don't understand what you're doing, if you don't have someone to get you confident, to make you feel safe, you're not going to learn well and the result will not be very impressive. So take the shortcut. There is professional people like myself or like other freediving instructors or coaches who have dedicated their life to do this professionally. And that's the fastest way to learn the sport fast and perform well and to learn it safely. Because when you learn by yourself, there's so many information out there and then the half of them are not correct or they're not explained well. And it's, it's an extreme sport. Huh? We're not playing ping pong when we free dive. So you, there is free divers dying every single year. So uh, it's, it's, it's the skydiving of the ocean. This is what we're doing. So, of course, It's dangerous when you compete, when you push human boundaries, and it's not dangerous when you learn it with a professional and you just want to go 10, 20, 30 meters deep and hold your breath for for five minutes. This is not dangerous. Uh, But it can be if you misunderstand a few safety rules or if you just don't understand if you're using the wrong technique, like the wrong breathing. If you use the static breathing technique, for the deep diving uh, discipline, this is very dangerous. Uh, if you don't know that in the water, you're not supposed to hold your breath alone. It, we always two. Even if when you watch videos, sometimes you see one freediver, there's the cameraman, and there's there's a few people around in case we pass out and they have a procedure to wake us up. And it's totally fine. Same as uh, boxers or even boxers. KO is even worse than a freediving blackout. So yeah this is my my best advice and my second one I mention it in this uh, podcast is remember that performance will come from repeating very regularly a medium difficulty performance a lot instead of pushing yourself and getting a performance purely because you're motivated.
0: Awesome. So that might feed in quite nicely to the last one. So I ask everyone the same question on this podcast. The final question is to finish every podcast. I'm keen to leave the listeners with some simple routines that they can adopt and apply on a daily basis. What principles would be at the top of your list to form the foundations of human health, or in other words, a human first approach?
1: so um, starting with the routine um, a routine for a free diver is even if you're not into static breath hold discipline and you enjoy more diving on a line as deep as you can or swimming length of pool without breathing or just going spearfishing don't underestimate the power of uh, training just breath hold without moving so I would say that a 30 minute routine daily about just 10 minutes stretching the ribcage and 20 minutes of breath hold exercise total 30 minutes daily uh, as soon as you wake up just off the bed is extremely beneficial to every freediver spare fisherman or people who likes to do breath work and you'll be so surprised how much skills you gain over a few weeks, a few months, by just thirty minutes? The second part of your question can you can you remind me again?
0: Yeah, so what principles would be the top of your list, for example, some people have said, like daily movement, going outside, that sort of stuff. What would form the foundations of human health?
1: The foundation of human health. <laughs> well, I mean, if I knew uh I'd be very happy um <laughs> I, I don't know so far, I think I would say that cardiovascular is uh maybe one of the um one of the biggest illness worldwide, and we all need to take care of our cardiovascular system, so you need to have flexible blood vessels. Without any blockage, blood clots, and you can do just exercise. Uh, not not even free diving Obviously, breath hold is an extraordinary uh, cardiovascular exercise. But any sport, like try to be active, and um, it's also an antidepressant, in my opinion. This is how I see sport is like the best antidepressor uh, and stress reliever. So. You know, if you don't like sport, if you say, I don't like sport, it's just because you haven't found your interest. But, you know, just keep looking and uh, you, you'll find a sport you really enjoy. And I would say, uh, I'll finish with this. The second uh, biggest health, um, I don't know how you phrase this, but health uh, boost uh, important would be intermediate fasting, in my opinion. I think everyone should fast you know 16 hours daily like you should have you should be allowed to eat 8 hours a day and three meals a day is the biggest bullshit mm, the biggest um <laughs> i agree uh, sorry i'm oh, allowed to swear yeah man the yeah you carry bullshit. on please do uh like yeah three three um Three meals a day is too much. Like you, you can get your two thousand calories daily or whatever you need for your metabolic rate. You don't need three meals a day. Like two meal, two meals is enough. You know, and uh, just just get two bigger meals, and uh, you eat less often. You are less tired. Surprisingly, you'll have more energy when you eat twice a day than when you eat three, four, five times a day. Uh, because digestion is a very long process. It use it uses a lot of energy. Uh, you spike your sugar. You create uh, hormones to get the sugar down. And it's it's a whole mess. So just eat less. You'll be happier and you live longer and you'll have less um, less health issues. Uh, I feel it straight away with my asthma. The more I eat, the more I have asthma. The less I eat, the less I have asthma. It's as simple simple as this.
0: So good. So good. It's actually something I've adopted over the years as well. I found that sixteen eight has worked very well. Uh, I've done this for about six to seven years now. So um, the links to your course, that's just on your website. Is that correct? Just You can go through your Instagram or direct to your website, which I'll put in the links as well.
1: Yes, correct. Uh, for now, I only have one
0: social media, which is
1: Instagram. I might get more in the future. Uh, but uh, yeah, to find my website, my website is thestaticplatform.com. And uh, if you don't remember, you just found me on Instagram and it's uh, it's on the bio of the Instagram.
0: Awesome, man. Uh, Florian, incredible conversation. Thank you so much for taking uh, nearly two hours out of your time. What you've done to sort of take your body, I'm always fascinated to talk to people like yourself, which I mentioned earlier, because you've taken your body to a limit where people think we can't go to these, these things. Now, what I wanted to do with this podcast was educate people to how capable the human body is. And then you are one example of that especially with the adversity you've been through and to come out the other end and achieve incredible things off the back of adversity. So thanks for joining me and uh, I look forward to speaking to you again at hopefully some point in the future. Well,
1: I feel the same. Thank you, David. It was
0: a very nice chat and uh, see, you, see you next time for another one. Thank you, my friend. As always, thank you for joining Florian and myself for this episode. To find out more about his work and how to train with him online, please follow the link in the show notes. I have personally just signed up to his zero to five minutes course. A small request from me, please like, subscribe and share episodes like this to help me to continue to pass on information from experts around the world with you. Thank you for listening. See you on the next episode.